welcome to the podcast of the Center for Asian American Christianity at Princeton Theological Seminary, a space for ongoing dialogue among Asian American scholars, ministry leaders, and activists. And let me introduce our speaker for this hour. Dr. Russell Jung is Professor of Asian American Studies at San Francisco State University. Uh, Dr. Russell Jung is an author of books and articles on race and religion. He's written Family Sacrifices, The Worldviews and Ethics of Chinese Americans with Oxford Press 2019, Mountain Movers, Student Activism and the Emergence of Asian American Studies, UCLA 2019, and At Home in Exile, Finding Jesus Among My Ancestors and Refugee Neighbors, Zondervan 2016. For his research and activism, the Association of Asian American Studies awarded Dr. Jung as Engaged Scholar in 2017. He received the Excellence in Professional Achievement Award from San Francisco State University in 2021. In March 2020, Dr. Jung co-founded Stop AAPI Hate with Chinese for Affirmative Action and the Asian Pacific Policy and Planning Council. It tracks incidents of COVID-19 discrimination to develop policy interventions and long-term solutions to racism. Stop AAPI Hate was awarded the 2021 Webby Award for Social Movement of the Year. In 2021, Dr. Jung was named as Time 100 Most Influential Persons and among the Bloomberg 50 for his global impact. The title of Russell Jung's presentation is The Educational Squid Game, Please join me in welcoming Dr. Jung. Thanks, David. And I'm glad to be here with uh, um, Princeton Theological Seminary's Hope from Ashes Summit. Um, it's always great to be with the Center for Asian American Christianity. I've really um, benefited a lot from discussions and I look forward to the conversation afterwards. Um, happy APA Heritage Month. Um, but of course, a lot of us celebrate that every day at every meal. I also want to um, acknowledge again the um, the anniversary of Saigu. It's that period has been a dark period for a lot of our communities, African American, Latino, Asian American, and so um, I'm honored to be able to share at this moment to reflect and to um, see what lessons we can learn from the LA riots. What legacy have we received, and how we could um, especially in this current moment of anti-Asian violence, how we could build solidarities. So the educational squid game. So I'm gonna look at the relationships of African-Americans and the Asian-American community in the um, field of education, um, secondary and um, college higher ed levels. And in the headlines recently, in the New York Times, there are two stories. Here on the left, <clears throat> in January, the headline read, Supreme Court will hear challenge to affirmative action at Harvard at UNC. In this case, um, plaintiffs challenged Harvard's and UNC's race-based affirmative action policies and accused Harvard of discriminating against Asian Americans by using subjective traits, such as likability, to create a ceiling for this group. The second case um, on the high school level um, came out three weeks later and the headline declares 
you have to give us respect how Asian Americans feel the San Francisco recall. And in San Francisco, um, voters removed three school board members, including a Latina, an African American, and a Pacific Islander because of their frustration with the school board's policies. Not only were Asian Americans angered about the board's COVID policies, but they were upset with changes in the admission process of Lowell High, a magnet school. Um, before you had to get in by test scores, but now it's a diversity, um, um, what do you call it when you um, <clears throat> just have a rate, um, you pull names. These two cases in the national news, news exemplify the contentious racialized education policies that seemingly pit Asian Americans against other communities of color. In both situations, Asians believe that they're the primary victims of discrimination as admission rules, supposedly formerly based on meritocracy and standardized tests, those rules get changed. Other communities of color, on the other hand, complain about why are Asian Americans obtaining so many slots in these elite academic schools. And these groups um, want to address the structural barriers that they have long faced in education. Asian Americans, it seems, are being used as the model minority to challenge the push for educational equity by other communities of color. Currently, even anti-CRT movements, Asian Americans are joining these movements that call for more parental rights. This debate has become rancorous, hate-filled, and clearly polarizing. It is, in fact, the education squid game. The squid game was popular because it actually reflected real life in so many ways, including how our educational system raises students, including students of color, to compete against each other, just like the squid game, in a zero-sum situation to fight to get into college. So let me explain how um, this squid game reflects our educational system, how it shows the role of the games are unfair and constantly changing. Ultimately, the education squid game in the United States in public schooling works for the benefit and interest of just a few, those who set the rules. So let me explain how. In the squid game, it was clearly an unfair competition and Individuals were placed often into teams and competed for billions of dollars in prize money. Even though the consequences, <clears throat> um, even though the games were unfair, the consequences of losing them were high, meaning death. For example, in the competition pictured here, contestants had to cut out a shape within a certain amount of time. It's a high stakes test, if you will. Some competitors had advantages. They had easier shapes to cut. They had experience in playing the game before. For example, this character figured out that if you lick the cookie, it's easier to cut. Similarly, in real life, students of color face structural barriers while other students have advantages in playing the game. Students of color have to attend under-resourced schools where often they have inexperienced teachers while those with higher incomes have better learning conditions and more experienced teachers. Students of color not knowing how to play the game of college admissions are often less prepared for standardized testing 
And those who are first gen college students often don't know about school choices. They don't know about magnet schools. Instead, students of color often face um, stereotyping. They get tracked. They lack role models. Um, they have barriers. And so it's easy for you to understand the issues um, that students of color face in winning and trying to get into elite universities. Asian Americans also have the right to complain about the educational squid game. In one game on the show, players had to walk across panes of glass that you can see here. The advantage, if you recall, went to the one person who worked in a glass factory and could figure out the strength of each pane of glass. Asian Americans be believing that the rules of this game are meritocratic and privilege the best in grades and tests invest heavily in preparing students for tests. Asian American immigrants often lack the cultural or economic capital to provide students with extracurricular activities um, or even help, you know, parents can't even help them with English. So they rely on studying as hard as they can. The best they could do is prepare their students for the squid game of tests. If they were playing this game, they would study Asians glass protection so they could pass the test in assessing glass strength. So Asian Americans who play this game would learn to play the rules of the game of studying which glass is stronger. So after all that effort of studying the strength of glass and being ready for the test, you can understand the frustration of Asian parents when admission criteria is changing. Now, instead of test scores, reviewers at elite schools test to evaluate the likability of applicants. It's as if Asian American parents and students are learning to cross the glass panes. They study glass, but then they turn off the lights so you can't even see the glass. How are Asian immigrants and students supposed to know what makes one likable? They're in the dark. And in this current moment of collective racial trauma, when one out of five Asians experience a hate incident, do you realize how hard it is to be considered likable if you're Asian? When the nation mistreats you and excludes you as perpetual foreigners just by the color of your skin, how are Asian students supposed to figure out how to become likable and overcome the odds of not knowing how to play this game? So meritocracy gets undermined. And since schools try to maintain diversity by race and geography, Asian Americans are often competing against one another because they live in the same communities. That's what we call the Asian disadvantage. They're not trying to compete against students across the nation. They're often competing against each other because only a certain slots go to those from that geographic location. They're competing in the Asian disadvantage against other Asians who really know how to study glass, who really know the strength of the glass. So you can see how students of color, Asians and others are pitted against each other in an educational squid game where both African-Americans and Asian-Americans face unfair rules of the game. To give you a better sense of um, how we're being used as the wedge group in this competition. 
um, I want to look at the LA riots and um, the recent George Floyd um, killing. Um, as we're undergoing the current racial reckoning, and as we think about the LA riots, Asian Americans really are at a quandary in American race relations. Um, we're often trying to figure out where do we fit in in America's racial hierarchy. We understand that America is based on whiteness and blackness, that most race relations, admissions policies, um, racial politics, racial um, history is understood on a white black dynamic. And so when George Floyd was killed, we were horrified to see George Floyd, an African-American killed. But then we were further aghast to see an Asian police officer complicit in the killing of an African-American. We knew that as Asians, other people saw us in him and see him in us. We can't separate ourselves from a co-racial member. So the question for Asian Americans are, are we complicit in whiteness and white supremacy? Are we really in solidarity with Black Lives Matter? Where do we fit in as Asian Americans? And of course, the answer is, well, are we white or are we black? We're neither. We're neither white nor black. And so oftentimes we don't fit in in America's racial hierarchy. We are omitted, we feel invisible, we feel excluded. Probably at Princeton, the Center for Asian American Center gets less attention, less funding, um, less focus because we're not seen as a real minority. At the same time though, <clears throat> we're treated on a different dynamic, the insider-outsider dynamic. And um, sometimes we are considered real Americans who belong, we're the model minority, that other groups like African-Americans should emulate. In the model minority case, we are used as a wedge group again. Other groups get blamed for not accomplishing, for not achieving the way Asian-Americans do. However, this status, um, when we're used as a wedge, it's convenient for those on top to blame the groups on the bottom for not being like Asian-Americans. Of course, this status of Asian Americans though, as plaintiffs in the Harvard case, or as real Americans that other groups should look up to, this status of insiders, of fitting in, really is conditional. Suni Lee, the US gymnast who won the gold medal, she won the gold medal for America on the highest international platform. But when she returned to Los Angeles, she was pepper sprayed and faced racial slurs. So this status of being the model in Marty, when we're used in this way, is really conditional. In times of war, such as World War II, when Japanese Americans were incarcerated, or after 9-11, when South Asians, Muslims, Arab Americans faced Islamophobia, in times of economic downturn, such as the LA riots, and in times of pandemic, Asians are treated as outsiders, perpetual foreigners who don't belong. And because we're treated as foreigners, we're treated really badly. Going against scriptural mandates, America treats foreigners really poorly. We build laws against foreigners. We separate the families of foreigners. 
And as Asians, when we're treated as foreigners, it seems okay to be able to cough and spit on us. So you could see how Asians are made as a wedge group, um, trying to divide up communities of color, um, saying that the concerns for education, the concerns for civil rights, um, concerns for police reform aren't valid because Asian Americans should be emulated. I think on the other hand, that what we need to do is come together as a group in the unfair competition of the squid games and work together to dismantle these binaries. We're racialized differently, but we're both, um, again, both groups are facing unfair rules to the game that we need to dismantle. So on a personal level, you could see how, well, on the broad level, you could see how Asian Americans are treated unfairly. But on the individual level, um, the educational squid game is also um, harmful. And let me tell you from my own personal example what the cost of being a squid game winner is. I actually attended Lowell High. I was a winner in getting into that school, and then I got to go to Stanford. My wife went to Harvard. So we, my family, are actually winners in the squid game. We are actually the model minority that others should emulate. But um, as I went to Lowell and as I went to um, Stanford, I realized I learned how to be competitive. I learned how to take tests, write papers, be competitive. And so I could succeed in the educational squid game. But when I finished schooling and I tried to, um, when I worked, <laughs> and even now, um, in the workplace, in my neighborhood, which is a multiracial neighborhood, I realize I really don't fit in. I learned to be competitive in my education, but I never learned how to be compassionate. I never learned how to be empathetic. I came to Oakland where I live now and realized I don't know how to talk to my neighbors. I can't fit in. I'm only used to the Stanford people that I grew up with. And so what's even more sad is that I've realized over time, um, even though I'm founding Stop AAPI Hate, I'm a hater myself. I never learned the social emotional skills. I never learned, um, again, empathy, but instead simply learned how to be entitled. So I'm sadly a squid game winner, but the cost is that I'm probably not someone you would really, really want to um, work with on a close level. Even though my schooling and my education, I mean, I enjoyed learning, I enjoy my classmates, and even though I have some personal issues, there was one class in high school that I really did learn from, that I learned some better virtues that more are more Christian. In my high school at Lowell, we actually had Asian American studies and it totally changed my life. Um, first of all, Asian American studies helped me to understand the contradictions I saw in the United States. I worked um, at uh, the Pacific Stock Exchange and saw how workers of color had to do the janitorial work, had to do the clerical work, where, while all the brokers were white males. I learned 
Now, I grew up seeing how workers in Chinatown who were immigrants worked really hard, but never were able to get ahead. Oftentimes, they had faced wage theft. Asian American studies helped me develop critical thinking so that I could understand the impact of race and racism, that I could understand the intersectional nature of class and gender. And by doing so, it really helped me have a framework to understand my positionality as an Asian American. Asian American studies then gave me a sense of ethnic pride. Back while I was growing up, again, I had no, no role models, um, few, um, but were, was really shaped by stereotypes. But Asian American studies gave me possibilities. Um, the, even the, the, the identity of being Asian American was freeing and because it was open-ended and an emergent identity. Asian American studies taught me a sense of social responsibility and civic engagement that I should be empowering my community given my educational privilege. And it really did give me a sense of um, commitment to empowering the Asian American community. Um, Asian American studies gave me a sense of racial solidarity as I saw that Asians faced a lot of barriers and similar racialization as other communities of color that I began to identify with African-Americans. I began to connect with Latinos. So all these things I learned, um, all the best things about my character in some ways, I've learned from Asian-American studies. And if you could see the footnotes, other students taking Asian-American studies also benefit from this type of classwork. If the Squid Game revealed any morality, if the Squid Game show showed any virtues in humanity, it revealed how teams can come together, work together if they realize they're in the same position. And we could see that teamwork, we could see that solidarity, we could see that um, overcoming of self-centeredness um, in the tug of war game. Ethnic studies does that too. Its pedagogy, its content illustrates that all of us face a common situation and how we need to learn to come together in solidarity if we're to sur survive as a society. California, New Jersey, where Princeton is, Illinois, they're now requiring Asian American studies as um, a class. It seems to me common sense that other states should also want to incorporate ethnic studies if we want to pursue educational equity, address achievement gaps, and um, build a sense of national unity. Now, in September 20, while there is has been a movement for Asian American studies, 10 states now have pending legislation. At the same time, there's a corresponding anti-CRT movement that's even larger. In September 20, um, again, this critical race theory, critical race theory addresses race and disparities of racial outcomes. Um, it addresses the questions I asked even in high school. Why are communities of color more poor? Why are um, all the workers in this labor force white male? That's what critical race theory helps us understand. But it's been portrayed as critical racist theory. It's been portrayed as indoctrination, as sowing racial division, as being neo-Marxist propaganda. 
So this movement really has emerged and I wanna sort of address it a little bit as another movement to create a wedge between Asian Americans and um, African Americans. The CRT movement actually started in September 1920 when President Trump issued an executive order where federal employees couldn't have any more trainings that um, involve critical race theory. Because of this ban, because of this executive order, I was actually banned from presenting on Stop API Hate to federal employees because I actually talked about the role of race in the institutional and historic discrimination of Asian Americans. Since this executive order, 16 anti-critical race theory bills have been signed and 19 to 23 are pending. So again, this critical race movement has been in larger than the Asian American studies movement. This movement calls for bans on books and concepts. Um, for example, um, one county removes a book about Chinese Americans called Dragon Wings from the curriculum. It calls for bans on certain feelings and, and concepts. So Florida recently rejected 54 math textbooks because it has certain concepts. So even in the teaching of what we think is a uh, sort of abstract math um, that is neutral, um, people are using critical race theory to reject certain math textbooks. And the anti-critical race theory movement advocates for parent rights and often includes reporting so that parents could report on teachers so currently teachers are getting death threats. Teachers have a you know, really difficult situation. It's already hard to teach in public schools, but to have parents surveil you and report on you is a lot like the Red Scare of the McCarthy era. What we've realized is that the squid game, <clears throat> um, the critical race theory movement is a lot like the squid games. The Republican his party has created a straw man, a boogeyman to instill fear among parents. You could see the fear here, especially among white voters. The fear, for example, is that students are getting Marxist propaganda works. And that worked in the 1950s, right? In the McCarthy area, it was used in the 1960s when a plurality of Americans believe that the civil rights movement was infiltrated by communists. And it's being used today during the pandemic to blame China for COVID-19. This racism, this use of race to um, create fear has been a tactic employed by the Republican Party because it works. It mobilizes certain groups to really rally up out of fear. So this situation of the use of critical race theory to incite fear to divide up members in the squid game, players in the squid game, <clears throat> really has been reflective of the show. And what we saw in the show is that actually those controlling the role of the game were rich investors in a special seat, you see them here, who enjoy the games for their own pleasure. Like these individuals, politicians now are stirring up racial divisiveness for their own benefit. Concerns about what's taught in the school, a very valid concern gets manipulated, manipulated, politicized to galvanize a major movement to take over school boards 
and then eventually um, to take over swing states during midterm elections. This education squid game in which white families become fearful of a theory that they don't understand where communities of color are pitted against each other really is genius. The squid game in education really is genius. We're all competing against each other even when the rules of the game make us all lose. So when you watch the squid games, don't you wonder why are these people still playing the squid games if their lives are at stake? Why don't all the players work together, rise up and overcome the game masters? So, I think you at this conference are also asking these same questions, recognizing we have to change the rules of the game. That how education operates benefits just a few, how education as the rules are set up really harms communities of color, including Asian Americans. So what we need to do, and what I'm gonna suggest wrapping up, is that we change the rules of the education squid game that we simply opt out, press that red button and restart a whole new way of educating our communities and working together. The first step for me is decolonizing the pedagogy and training teachers so that they don't buy into the squid games, so that they aren't like guards supporting the games, but rather um, teachers who really empower their their students. What we need is um, a pedagogy that is less competitive, but involves anti-racist education that involves social emotional learning. If I had gotten this type of training, maybe I wouldn't be the bully I am today. Maybe if I got this type of social emotional training, I would be a more effective leader. The teaching of social emotional learning which a lot of anti-CRT people are against, really is an effort to teach healthy identities. Social emotional learning involves uh, management of emotions, empathy, responsibility to society. These values in social emotional learning, these skills are exactly what I think are fruits of the spirits that I need to learn, that I wish I had gained while I was in school characteristics of forbearance, skills of kindness and gentleness, the ability to gain self-control. So um, what we're pushing for at Stop API Hate is um, for teacher training, um, for the inclusion of ethnic studies to promote not just learning content, not just to avoid uncomfortable feelings, but to really address race so that our, all our students white, black, and Asian, Latino, learn to be gentle, forbearing, and kind to each other so that we could learn to work together in a um, unified society. Another way I think we need to reform the curriculum and our school um, rules of the game beyond um, the content is reframing what educational equity looks like. Um, I think everybody is for educational equity. I think most Americans value equal opportunity, 
They want every student to reach their full potential. People recognize that some students are, <clears throat> are behind um, because again, they come from under-resourced communities that are first-gen college students. So they need, for equity's sake, more, more supports to get to the starting place. But that's just one part of educational equity is supporting students who have deficits. What we need to do is recognize that every student has assets as well, that we come from cultures and backgrounds. We come from diversity that could be really educational, not just for students of color, but for everybody. So educational equity means not only helping students with deficits, but also sharing from the cultural wealth of every community. What we need to do is diversify the narratives in our schooling to include the cultural wealth of all students. Scripture talks about this as well, that every nation has glory and honor that will be brought to God in the kingdom of heaven. Scriptures talks about how God himself judges the world, rules the world with equity. So this notion of educational equity, I think, should be part of the educational squid game. It should be part of the rules of the game and that we are concerned not only with uh, making up for students' disadvantages, but bringing in and blessing each other, blessing each other with the glory and honor of all their cultural wealth. And finally, the third way I would change the educational squid game is to really, again, see education as a public good. If you look here, these are the number of Asian Americans at community colleges, at the CSU system where I teach, at the University of California system where people are at Berkeley and UCLA, and at Harvard. You could see that three times the number of students attend community college than they do UC and 200 times the students get into or attend community college than get into Harvard. My obvious question is why are Asian Americans fighting so much to get into the few slots at Harvard? If we care about educational policy, why aren't we caring about where the bulk of Asian American students attend? Why don't we create policies, file lawsuits, um, push for teacher pipelines to improve the education for everybody rather than fighting over a small piece of the pie. I think Christians especially should be concerned with the public good, that they shouldn't be just fighting over small pieces of the pie, but again, thinking about the common good, thinking about the entire city, thinking about the poor, and those who have less advantages. For me, it just, again, seems pretty biblical and Christian. If instead of trying to be part of a wedge community supporting the status quo, we as Asian American Christians and our allies work to change the rules of the game to benefit all. So to conclude, <clears throat> I've been talking about the educational squid game where communities of color are pitted against each other, fighting over lots of money, but fighting to the death. And just like the LA riots, 
African-American communities are pitted against Asian-American communities in this fight for the death, to the death. I want to suggest another game, an ethnic game, that um, could provide a different metaphor, and that's the pinata. So um, pinatas are now ubiquitous. Um, in some ways, you could see it um, as a very individualistic game where kids um, fight for candy. But if you understand the origins of the pinata, you could see how it could provide new rules for the game. Originally, the pinata um, had spokes in the pinata, and each one represented the seven deadly sins. So there were seven spokes on a pinata. What players were supposed to do is try to beat back the seven deadly sins, using um, faith as the stick and virtue as a stick. Oh, no. They're, they use virtue as a stick and they're blindfolded, but that means they're acting out of faith rather than sight. So by acting in faith with virtue as a stick, they were supposed to beat back the seven deadly sins. If they were able to do so and successfully beat back the deadly sins, then what happens is that God's blessings shower down, not just on them, but on everybody. And so I think this should be our approach as Christians, as followers of Jesus in the, in the education games. Our interests shouldn't be to look after our own individual community's interests, our self-interest for our own kids, but we should be thinking about equity for all, wanting to shower God's bounty on everyone. Thanks a lot. We here at the Center for Asian American Christianity at Princeton Theological Seminary invite you to join in the ongoing dialogue on Asian American faith, identity, social engagement, and ministry through our newsletter, blog, and upcoming conferences at ltiaa.com.